So we're in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. And if you're listening to this online, uh, what uh, Stephen, our long-haired, behatted worship leader, has just read out, that it's a disgrace for a man to have long hair and wear a hat in church. Um, And uh, we're going to try and unpick that and other difficult issues as we work through this passage today. And I'm going to lean very heavily on a few scholars including Gordon Fee and uh, Kenneth Bailey, uh, put together very helpfully by Jeanette Fogarty uh, in a blog post on this passage. Um, The first thing for us to note before we pray is that how you hear something read out is not necessarily how it's meant or orally spoken by the person who wrote it. It's one thing for me to write a letter to a staff member and saying, you did really well today, um, when I could have been saying, you did really well today, as in sarcastically, or another one, it could be, you did really well today, as in shock, or another one, which was, you did really well today, as in affirmation. You can say the same words with different tones, and it it, um, does us well to assume the best of the text and the best of the writers when we approach passages like this, and it does us very poorly if we just think that they ought to be chopped out of the scripture without doing the hard work of making sense of them and what they uh, mean, which might be useful to us. Um, So let's pray, and then we'll look at what Jeanette Fogarty's got to say. Holy God, we love you, and we worship you, and we pray today that you'll give us an increased revelation and understanding of a tricky part of scripture that we might not normally spend time in. Now, please teach us about your whole word as we do so. Give us a fresh confidence in you and in your authorship of your word and an ability to put our trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is uh, Jeanette then uh, saying, it's a strange hair-raising passage, certainly a challenging piece of scripture, but one that I think helps us to appreciate Paul's concern that our behavior does not malign our witness to the gospel. Our behavior does not malign our witness to the gospel. If there's one thing that Paul is about again and again, it's like whatever you're doing, make sure it's not getting in the way of pointing people to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is everything. Jesus is life. Jesus is freedom. Jesus is hope. So anything that you do that might cause a stumbling block to other people or to yourself, doesn't matter if it's good, bad, or indifferent, just streamline onto the Jesus stuff. And Jeanette again says, good exegesis starts with understanding the passage's cultural and literary context, which is what we try and do each week, isn't it? We're looking at in the passage and saying, uh, what's the context in 1 Corinthians? What's the context of the people who are writing there? And what does it, how does it fit into the rest of the scripture? So we know already lots about the church of Corinth uh, from this service, a multicultural society, trade hub, place of racial religious diversity, Remember how people would land on one port and go across to the other port, carrying their boats with them and stopping at five or six brothels on the way through. It's that sort of a heady new town uh, and seaside town. The challenge to the early church then was uh, was the delicate balance of freedom in Christ and the restriction of behaviors so as not to be a stumbling block to others receiving and growing in faith. An example of this we saw last week. Uh, about food laws. Paul tells them that they can eat any food from the market and any food put before them in an unbeliever's home. Uh, but if the unbeliever first tells them it was to, offered to idols, then you have to weigh up your freedom in that because you don't want them to think 
actually, I'm just going along with your pagan thing. This instruction was for the sake of the unbeliever and not for the believer. That's Paul's main concern. Don't put a stumbling block in the way of other people. So, what she calls the heady issue at Corinth. Well, 1 Corinthians 11 begins with Paul praising the believers at Corinth for remembering him and for holding on to the traditions he passed on. That's verse 2. Paul then writes about an issue in the church, hairstyles and head coverings. And he begins with this interesting prelude. Have a look at that in uh, verse 3. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, some commentators use this uh, passage to reinforce a view that husbands are the authoritative head of the wife. Um, they've never watched The Simpsons, obviously. <laughs> um, but, but does this fit the content and the context? The Greek word translated head in this verse is kephale, which Philip Payne notes in the, in the original Greek, the common Greek, um, would not have been read as a leader or having authority over. He and others have contended that kephale is better understood as being the head of a river, like the source of a river, so the originating place from which it comes. And if you look at head in this passage and the different uses of it, you can see that, that that's a plausible and possible fit for what it means. In Greco-Roman culture, women were generally dependent on men as the source of their life in society. Men provided safety and financial security, whether it's husbands for wives or fathers for their daughters. So in that sense, you can say that uh, sociologically, the men are the source of the women's freedom and financial security. It's important when we look at 1 Corinthians 11, she continues, that we look at the Greek to determine if Paul is referring to men and women in general, or husbands and wives in particular. Uh, verse 3b, the head, kephala, of every man, Anna, is Christ, and the head, that's kephala, of every woman, which is guna, is the man, and the head, kephala, of Christ, is God. So note that the use of the word head is the same between Christ and God, as between man and woman. So we've got to, whatever we think about the, the balance between Christ and God has also got to be reflected here. So if, it, if you see God as a dominating influence over Christ, um, then that is replicated in man over woman. If you see Christ and God as equals, then that is reflected there as well. It's the same, same word within a, a couple of verses. So it has to have the same sort of thrust of meaning. Um, now, uh, according to Payne, some Bible versions mistakenly translate man and woman as husband and wife, but there is no his before woman or an article that might lend support to this. A key reason they translate 11 verse 3b as the husband is the head of the wife is they've read back into head, that's the kephala word, the metaphorical meaning it often has in English and some other languages, but rarely, if ever, had in native Greek, namely authority. The standard lexicon does not list authority or anything like it as a possible meaning among its 48 figurative translations of kephala. So the normal use of kephala is not, I'm in charge of you, um, although that's how it's come to be used for all sorts of reasons down through history, particularly if you think about the history we've lived through over the last well, two millennium and beyond. Uh, oftentimes in the battle of the sexes, there have been very dominant male figures and uh, subversive sometimes, but subdominant female figures generally in history. So our sort of what we look around and think, oh, I'm in charge of you, wife, <laughs> becomes 
sort of part of how we read the text, and then that's how we experience it and give it back to other people. Um, so if we read this passage in terms of source, as I said earlier, it does help us with thinking about Jesus and God. Because however we're going to balance man and woman in this passage, we also have to balance Jesus and God. And I think probably increasingly our sense of uh, who Jesus and God are, uh, of people, uh, persons who are distinct, but in one essence, they're all equally God. And Jesus, although he voluntarily submits himself to the Father and only does what the Father's doing, is also, in his very nature, as we said, or we'll say in the creed, in the very nature God. He's not a sub-God, he's not a mini-God, he's not a minor-God, he's not an under-God, except that he voluntarily limits himself to become Jesus of Nazareth. Does that make sense? So if God is God and Jesus is equal to God, even though he doesn't assume his equality, that explains something of the relationship here between man and woman as well. So you could retranslate this verse in an interpretive way uh, like this, and, and have, a, have a listen to this, see if this makes sense, looking down at the passage at the same time. Uh, so this is uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. Man was sourced, originated in Christ, e.g., uh, through him all things come, and through him we live. For in him all things were created. And the source of the woman is man, because woman was originally sourced from man, being made from his side, see Genesis 2. And the head of Christ is God. Christ is fully human and fully divine. He came from God. The Father sent the Son, who took on flesh in the person of Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of Mary. The Spirit anointed Jesus with power as the Christ, the Messiah. Hence, the head of Christ is God. Now, that's a fast way of saying some complicated things. But essentially says, Christ comes from God. God is the source of God. God is the source of Christ. Uh, and man uh, was the source of woman in the Genesis story. Um, do you remember... Adam lies down, goes into coma, uh, a rib's taken out from his side, and Eve uh, comes from, from his side. Um, so this all makes sense in terms of how they would understand male-female relationships. Um, does that make sense, these opening passages? It's, it's certainly interesting, isn't it? And you, I think the key thing to hold on to is whatever the relationship you think is between God and Christ, that in these verses is mirrored with the relationship between man and woman. So does God oppress and dominate Jesus Christ? Quite the opposite. He wants to exalt him, doesn't he? And so man-female relationships should be actually not oppressing, but, but exalting, building up, encouraging, strengthening. Um, so, but how about um, dear Stephen's hat? What should we say about his hat and uh, covering his head? Because surely we should have some ammunition from this passage to make him go to the barbers and, uh, and spice up his appearance. Um, well, let's have a look at that and see if we've got ammunition for this. Um, and uh, I'm really speaking for his girlfriend here, because I'm sure she'd like me to find some. <laughs> um, well, immediately after verse 3, Paul starts talking about head coverings. So what does those, what does whose head of whom have to do with head coverings? By appealing to the creation order, reminding us that they were made distinctly male and female, uh, that we are either male or female fundamentally. Paul is telling believers that what is on their literal heads brings honor or shame to their metaphorical head and therefore impacts their public witness of the gospel. So what you wear on your, on your hat or not reflects on who has been your source. <laughs> um, 
And to put, put that into sort of slightly contemporary, um, if you um, came as a couple to church um, in our, our context, it's quite hard to imagine what might shock or be a bad reflection um, in terms of dress sense, because we, we have very open sort of policy. But I suppose if, if you came in and uh, one partner was screaming at the other um, or, or just had outrageous behavior of some sort of another, you would say, well, that reflects not just on the one who's screaming, but also on the other half. And you sort of think, what's gone wrong um, with the, the other person <laughs> that has caused this to happen? And that's part of what's going on here. So you're saying, if you've got, in, in this culture, you've got your head covering wrong, it says something about the bloke that you're with as well. Um, if, you're, if you're sort of dressed up like you're flirtatiously trying to attract someone else, it sort of says something about the marriage situation going on over here as well. Do, do you see what I mean? So it reflects on the source, uh, what you wear on your head. And she says, we could, we could gloss over this passage thinking it doesn't have any relevance for us today. But the point of the passage is behavior appropriate to Christian witness. The questions, not, uh, the questions to cover or not to cover in leading worship was very important for the Christian witness at Corinth. And we can learn some valuable principles from it. Uh, so verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. Now, Kenneth Bailey is contending that Paul is telling men they ought to uncover their heads because of their new status in Jesus Christ. And that's, uh, if you look at 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, Paul describes how Moses had to veil his face, but when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and we all with unveiled face behold the glory of God, and we're being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Um, so and on that count, it's sort of saying, take off anything that covers you from God, because we've, we're in a new era. When Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he had to cover up, because the glory was shining out of him, and, he was, and everyone was like, ah, get the glory away from you. Uh, now, we have even more glory than Moses had. Don't cover it up. Just shine it out of your face and your eyes. Don't let, don't let the hat cover it over. Don't let a veil cover it over. Just shine for Jesus, fellows. Um, there's nothing um, that you want to sort of get in a gap between there and there. Um, and there's also an argument from others that what Paul is talking about is hairstyles, um, Steve, and hairstyles. Uh, and this is because of verse 14, if you look down. Um, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? Uh, according to Payne, a theologian, Greek, Roman, and Jewish literature of Paul's day frequently speaks of men wearing long, effeminate hair, long, effeminate hair as disgraceful, especially when done up like a woman's hair. Many desiring homosexual liaisons advertise their sexual availability through display of effeminate hair, particularly in the Dionysiac cult that was influential in Corinth. So Paul didn't want them to be looking like they were trying to pull a uh, a rent boy or, or something like that. Or they were advertising saying, I'm available, come, come and get me to, to predatory males. Um, that's what it would have looked like if they were having long hair in, within that culture and framework. So I don't think Stephen quite qualifies in that category. Um, it just looks, unless you, you know, I think you'd have to, you'd have to shave and uh, smarten up a bit to, to fit that, um, that sort of camp category. <laughs> um, 
As Corinth was a multicultural and multi-faith society, some believers would have been converts from the worship of pagan gods and goddesses, and some would have been Jews who had a newfound freedom from the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. Because of this, both views might be valid. Freedom from Jewish custom of wearing a veil and exhorting men not to wear their hair as a covering in a way that blurs the circuses. So it might be about hats and it might be about hair. Both things may, in fact, be true. Um, uh, one thing to tell men what to do, uh, quite another thing to try and tell women what to do, in my experience. Um, so let's see what he's trying to do in those middle verses. Um, verse 5. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her hair uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her hair shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she may as well have her hair cut off. But it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. And looking out at you in a congregation, you're in violation of this uh, clear principle that you should have your heads covered uh, today. So let's see if you're uh, guilty uh, under current legislation today. Um, before, we, before we work this out, um, it is worth noting the, the often missed point uh, in this passage uh, that it was common practice for not only men, but also women to pray and prophesy in the church gathering. And that's going to be really important when we come on to a later passage in, uh, in chapter 14. So women and men were speaking publicly in church, praying and prophesying in church. Such activities are associated with leadership. Prayer is to God on behalf of the people and prophecy is from God for the people. In, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6, Paul says, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Indeed, Paul regards prophecy as the greatest gift and states that God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, their teachers. So women are prophesying using the greatest of the gifts that Paul outlines and in leadership roles in Corinth. I think that's a reasonable uh, thing to take from that part of the passage. Paul does not prohibit women from leading in worship, but instructs them to do so, at this time in Corinth, with their head covered. Similar to the men, Paul could be talking about the veils, as respectable women wore veils. We cannot know for sure that this is uh, what he had in mind from Paul and Peter's instruction for women not to braid their hair with gold, uh, and that women wore their hair up without a veil. Payne, Fee, and others contend that women praying or prophesying with head uncovered refers to letting hair hang loose and not tied up. Uh, so it's whether you've got it neat up here or hanging down your shoulders at, at great length. Uh, I think sort of Sarah Shahadi style. <laughs> um, and this is indicated in verse 15, for long hair is given to her as a covering. Now, in the Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture, loose hair signified sexual looseness. As Payne notes, in the Dionysiac cult, which we had before, which was a prominent temple in Corinth, it was customary for women to, in that context, let down their hair to prophesy. And while they prophesied, they would also engage in all sorts of sexual debauchery. So the worship involved sexual acts on the altar and all sorts of things with the hair loose and uncovered. That's what they would let their hair down for. Worship, which involved sexual immorality at the same time. Uh, that would, you know, I think on any fairly reasonable church, even the Church of England, you'd probably be like, yep, that's beyond the pale of what we're going to allow in our worship services. <laughs> don't let your hair down like that, ladies. We don't need to see it all hanging out, so to speak. <laughs> 
And it would certainly bring shame not only on the woman, but on her husband. It would be the equivalent shame of having her hair shaved or cut off. Um, and, and that's not an anti-chemotherapy moment. That's because the reason you'd have your hair shaved or cut off in the context is if you'd been caught in the act of adultery to shame you. So someone who had their hair shaved wasn't just a Sigourney Weaver fashion statement for the film Alien. It was someone who had been caught in the act of adultery, which of course brings the shame onto uh, her and to her husband. So letting the hair down all the way was a sign of prostitution in a religious context, and having it shaved off was a sign of being punished for adultery. Indeed, as Payne notes, in Hellenistic, Roman, and Jewish cultures, for centuries preceding and following the time of Paul, virtually all of the portraiture, sculpture, and other graphic evidence depicts respectable women's hairs done up, not let down loose. Kenneth Bailey, who's a favorite theologian of mine, um, contends that Paul was encouraging the men that it is now okay to pray and prophesy with head uncovered, said that although this applies to women in the congregation, for women leaders, they should have the veil because uncovered hair can be sexually enticing and so distract from the worship. So whatever you're doing or wearing up the front, women, and I guess men, um, try not to wear a suit that's too snappy and smart and enticing that it puts the women off in the congregation, or a skirt that's too short or revealing that puts the men off in the congregation. Whether it refers to a veil or a covering of the head being done up for, like a cover for the head, Paul is concerned with women not being seen as sexually provocative as they lead worship. Of course, today's short or long hair, hair up or hair down, hats or no hats, has no such connotations, but worship leaders do need to be mindful that what they wear does not detract from the worship of God. I mean, that's reasonable point to make, isn't it? And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a conference where they have video cameras on the people up the front. Um, I went to one uh, not very long ago in the north of England, and um, on a massive screen behind the worshippers was a close-up image of, uh, of the lead worshippers singing into the microphone and the song lyrics just underneath them. And almost all the attention was drawn onto the well-made-up uh, man and woman at the front. And you almost a sense of being drawn into worshipping them as much as worshipping the Lord God. Now, I think there's, there's things to be aware of there, aren't there? Uh, whether you can wear uh, cassocks and surpluses that are just too sexy to, um, to shock people, I don't know. Maybe that's why they, they invented those things, uh, to cover everything up in one go. <laughs> And so a few more verses, if you can stand a little bit more uh, intellectual work this morning. This is seen in the next few verses. In verse 7, it says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the woman, but woman for man. Man is the glory of God, because God made man in his image from the dust of the earth. And woman is the glory of man, because she was made from him, and he glories in her as being a partner made for him. And he, this leads us to the most difficult verse of all, which is verse 10, um, which uh, we, we could go into. Um, I might do it very briefly. Uh, it's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. That's the translation from the NIV. Um, uh, and some argue that the passage shows that a woman's head covering is a symbol of male authority over her. But Gordon Fee points out that this doesn't fit with the Greek construction of the verse. It is the subject, the woman, who has authority over the object of the preposition, the head. It goes against the context, what Paul's trying to instill in the previous chapters. That is, that restricting the believer's newfound freedom for the sake of the gospel. 
Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. This is one of the major points of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 9, he's talked about his rights as the apostle and how rather than demanding those rights, he puts up with anything not to hinder the gospel. In chapter 10, he tells believers to restrict their freedom regarding what food they can eat for the good of others. And now in chapter 11, it's the same thing regarding rights in a godly way so as not to cause dishonor and become a stumbling block for the gospel. The woman has authority over the way she presents herself. Uh, She's free. It's your choice what you wear or don't wear. But out of your freedom, he says, choose to exercise that authority uh, in a way that you're careful because of the angels, quotes, unquotes. Who are the angels? Three possibilities, very, very briefly. It could be messengers, outsiders who, who see the church, looking on the church. It could be angels who are heavenly beings, as we commonly know them, uh, witnesses to worship and behavior. And angels uh, finally could refer to those in the church of Corinth who are behaving um, like they're, they're heavenly beings. They're, they're sort of uh, the ones who neither marry or are given in marriage. It's mentioned several times, and I could go into it um, more on another context um, if if you'd like to find out more about that, but we won't uh, go too far into it now. Everything in this passage of Scripture is consistent with the theme of unity that runs all through Paul's letters, the wonderful equality, respectfulness, and freedom of unity that upholds our oneness and distinctiveness. Kenneth Bailey summarizes it this way. Men and women have gifts that they share together, and prophecy is among them. Those with these gifts should participate together in the leadership of worship. When doing so, do not dress in a manner that leads to misunderstanding, or in a way that detracts from the task of bringing the faithful into the presence of God. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Let the focus be on God, not on yourselves. It is God you are In God, you are equal and mutually interdependent. Let the angels rejoice again. And so in today's situation, quite simply, um, I think probably all we need to take from it is not that you should all bring a hat to church next Friday, um, nor that, sadly, that uh, Stephen needs to shave his hair off um, because he might be provoking the wrong people to the wrong action. Uh, it's more that we should just be careful about how we present ourselves for the sake of others. Um, We should just be careful that nothing we do causes a stumbling block to people finding out about Jesus. We should minimize the path of resistance between uh, the gospel and other people, even if that means limiting our own personal freedom. Men are not to dominate women any more than God Almighty dominates the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sources in one understanding, uh, but not dominating heads with, with a, a sort of a subversive authority. We are to think of others' needs ahead of our own. And that's what we'll come on to again next week when we look at the wonderful practice of communion and how we should take that together.